Um, my name is John Samples. I'm a vice president, one of many vice presidents here at the Cato Institute. Um, and our panel, to, this final panel of our, what's been an excellent conference, is on free speech in the age of social media. So I'm going to say a few words by way of introduction. Uh, and then uh, basically each person will, I will introduce each person, and each person will give a five minute or so, maybe a little bit more, uh, discussion of the topic, how they see it, what they think needs to be done, what we need to be thinking about. Uh, then we'll discuss these issues among ourselves, like some of the earlier panels. And then finally, we'll go to Q&A before wrapping up uh, in a little over an hour. Uh, by way of introduction, let me say, you know, I think it's very plausible that this uh, uh, event, this last discussion, is misnamed. That really what we don't have, we don't have here a question of free speech. It certainly is, or is coming to be, the age of social media, but it may not be a question of free speech, at least as we think of it. That is in the Constitution that Congress may make no laws abridging the freedom of speech. Uh, this morning in an earlier uh, panel, Tom Stoller said at one point, that in fact Facebook and Google were becoming governments. Now one way to think about that is, you know, I just see these helicopters coming out of Building 23 in Menlo Park and attacking Google or something like that. If no, Facebook doesn't have an army so they're not a government. But he was making a point about monopoly and his, his views about concentration, correct? This is where free speech comes in. I think it's a valuable to think of free speech being threatened by government, which is not to say that speech doesn't take place elsewhere, but that it's a value to think about it in, in legal terms and in the terms of a distinction between public and private. So in a sense, what we're talking about with social media is not really about free speech, though it's certainly about speech. Perhaps uh, my fellow discussants will wish, will wish to disagree with, about that. But that's certainly one way to think about it. Uh, the other, now, if this were about free speech, you know, I think it would be both a lot easier for all of us and a lot uh, and more concise. That is, we would all be talking about judicial doctrine. The judicial doctrine would have a very broad area where speech was protected from government. Then we would focus in on the exceptions where the First Amendment doesn't apply. We would probably have discussions about maybe campaign finance. Or maybe we would talk about hate speech and where that, go where that doctrine is going. But we would be dealing with a body of rules that were very concise and clear. And we had a pretty good idea about where the exceptions were and where, what could actually get you in jail. Which, and so uh, Alan Dickerson, for example, when his clients comes to him, uh, could identify where uh, behavior or speech is permitted and where it's not. That's, that's what free speech doctrine is about. In the age of social media part, however, we are in a world where there is immense scaling of uh, what are essentially forums for speech. If you think about Facebook or even if you th and think about YouTube or others, think about Medium, much smaller uh, uh, website. What you're talking about is almost exclusively speech. Now, you may not think of it, and certainly a lot of it isn't political speech, but in the United States, we've long, as a political matter and legal matter, taken a broad view of what speech is. These social media are actually composed almost exclusively of speech, and that uh, 
raises really interesting questions. For one thing, it means government actually is going to be kept out of that for the most part. Now, then you do have this additional question, though, which is that in these forums for speech, they are privately owned. And there is also a fair amount of uh, reason to think that privately owned forums are governed as the people who own them or their managers wish. So in fact, it becomes very possible our sort of clear and concise discussion of free speech actually doesn't exist in social media because actually they're not bound by that, by and large. They're probably bound by anti-discrimination laws and so on, but they can remove speech from the platform. And pretty much it is true, I think, that they can do it for whatever reason they wish, although they probably prudence will dictate otherwise. So that's the framework. We're actually, and really, when you think about it, we've only been in this world for, when was Donald Trump elected? 2016, right? That was really the start of it, when people became really concerned about what was going on online. Um, we are in this world where we don't really know where the limits are. We don't know what, how we're going to go forward. And all of us together, and particularly the companies, are moving forward in a trial and error fashion. At least this is my view of these things, uh, of the issue of speech and social media. But it's also um, uh, all the issues that we run into on, uh, in the public sphere tend to be pushed over into the, this new private, these new private forums. So there's a sort of continual uh, set of issues uh, about speech being removed from platforms, speakers being removed from platforms. And we're beginning to see some lawsuits that perhaps will have a very difficult time, I think. Uh, but each day brings new uh, people complaining about their speech rights being uh, abridged. So I'd like to start by uh, turning to Corinne McSherry, who is the legal director at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, where she specializes in intellectual property, open access, and free speech issues. In addition to impact litigation on a variety of issues, her policy work includes leading EFF's efforts to address platform censorship, fix copyrights so that it encourages rather than impeding expression and innovation, and promote net neutrality. All of these issues, by the way, are connected to our topic, even though uh, they don't immediately uh, address speech. McSherry co comments regularly on digital rights issues and has been quoted on a variety of outlets, including NPR, CBS News, Fox News, The New York Times, Billboard, the Wall Street Journal and Rolling Stone. Prior to joining EFF, she was a civil litigator at the law firm of Bingham McCutcheon, LLP. Uh, Corinne, welcome to the Cato Institute. What do you think about these issues? <laughs> All right. Um, so so um, I'm going to make just, just a few points to help prompt the push the conversation forward uh, just a little bit, because I think I have, we have a great panel here, and I want to have lots of time for us to talk, talk to each other and talk with you. Um, so I'm going to make a few uh, provocative points and maybe less provocative points. Um, so my, my first point is from my perspective, um, the system that we now sort of refer to as, as content moderation. Um, at EFF, we call it platform censorship, but not, it's OK, different terms. Um, it, it's pretty fundamentally broken um, from our perspective. And I, I'll just point to three different ways that we see it. Um, first of all is you know daily, 
sometimes many times a day, there's reports of perfectly legitimate speech being taken down, works of art in museums that are flagged as suggestive because there's nudity in them, um, Egyptian activists being taken down because something in their account has been flagged as some potential hate speech, um, queer activists being taken down because some of the language that they use is deemed as offensive, Syrian journalists, videos of atrocities that are going on in Syria that are posted um, in order to inform the world being taken down because there's violence in, in them. And this isn't, by the way, a lot of times this conversation is, focuses a lot on Facebook, and that's not really fair. This isn't just Facebook, it's Twitter, it's YouTube, it's lots of other um, sites that under tremendous pressure from a lot of sides are trying to moderate the content on their sites and they're doing it badly. Um, but uh, there's another piece of that, and that can cause real harm to speech and can cause real harm to people in the world. Um, there's another group of people that are being harmed in content moderation systems, and that's the moderators. So there's three pieces that have come out just this week um, interviewing moderators or, or, or talking to moderators and reporting on how this is an awful job that they are forced to, to do. And obviously, they choose to do it. They don't have to do it. But it's a very, very hard, hard job that causes them real psychological harm. Um, another harm that doesn't get talked about enough is that um, when you build takedown systems um, following community standards, um, people think of that as a private system. Governments are perfectly happy to come in and take advantage of community standards guidelines to have speech taken down that they would be very uncomfortable taking down officially. So they will do it more unofficially, right? So, but I'm not here to say the companies are evil, they are terrible. Content I'm here to say content moderation is really hard. And it might actually be impossibly hard. And I think that should be on the table. Um, or tremendously, tremendously difficult to do. Even if you have a lot of resources, which many companies do not have, but even if you have the resources of Facebook, um, this may be an insurmountable problem. So there's that. Nonetheless, let's face it, the pressure is not going away. So what should we be doing? And I want to put some more eyes on, ideas on the table about that. One is I think we should not be doubling down. Okay, If something's not working real well, perhaps what we shouldn't be doing is saying, do it more. Right? I don't think that's a really great, a really great answer. Um, and that includes turning to the algorithms. There's a lot of sort of magic talk. It's like magic talk about block, blockchain. The blockchain will save us. Well, now AI will save us from all of the things. Uh, I don't think that that's right. And one of the reasons I don't think that's right is I'm a veteran of the copyright wars. And for years, we saw filters be put in place to take down infringing content and constantly grabbing up legitimate content. And this is still true. So what could we do? One thing we could do is we could take the money that we're investing in um, hiring more and more content moderators and investing in having a, still, though, a group of relatively small group of companies making big decisions about what our, the rest of our inter internet experience looks like. Take that money and invest it more in user tools so I, as a user, have more control over what my internet experience looks like. Um, the second thing that we can do is we can look at um, figuring out ways to promote competition. I think, frankly, a lot of co the conversations I'm in, I don't think we'd be having these conversations if we didn't have a relatively small group of companies with a tremendous ability to impact speech. Finally, 
um, there's more we can talk about later, but I just want to hit on the last thing, which is I think we can look at meaningful due process and really think about if we know mistakes are going to be made, what should we be doing about that? And a number of civil society groups got together about a year ago and put together what we call the Santa Clara principles. I won't get to go into all the details about them. Um, you can see them there, santaclaraprinciples.org. You can read the details. But the short version is we want numbers. We want details and full transparency about what's taking down and why. We want notice so that users know if their account is suspended or their content is taken down, they, want to, they get notice of it and they get an explanation of why it's happening. Because what we get is a lot of reports that show users being very confused. Um, and above all, a right of appeal. Um, a chance for users who have their account suspended or their content taken down to have a chance to appeal it, have a chance to present evidence, and, have, and, if it's, and, if, um, and have an explanation if the content stays down. The last thing I would say, though, is that the Santa Clara principles are a floor. They are not a ceiling. And there is more that we could be doing. So for example, um, one of the things we might consider doing is rather than is always having notice before content is taken down, unless you're in an emergency circumstance. Obviously, emergency circumstances happen. But if you're not in that situation, before content take, is taken down, give users notice. Give them a chance to appeal. If they do choose to appeal, the content stays up as a default, not staying down as a default. Um, we can talk more about other things, social media councils, a million other things. But I'll pause for now and just put those ideas on the table. So with this emphasis on uh, due process, I think Justice McSherry might be right for the Facebook Supreme Court. We'll get to that, I think, in a few minutes. Our next speaker will be Thomas Cadres, a PhD candidate at Yale Law School, a resident fellow at the Yale Information Society Project, and a Mellon Fellow. His research looks at the impact of network technologies on criminal and tort law, with a particular focus on the constitutional implications of cybersecurity and content moderation on online platforms. He's currently working on an article about how platforms like Facebook and LinkedIn are using anti-hacking laws like the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act to police, quote, public, unquote, spaces on the internet. His work has been published or is forthcoming in the Michigan Law Review, the Maryland Law Review, the New York Times, and Slate. He's also an adjunct professor at New York Law School, where he teaches cybercrime. Welcome to Cato, Thomas. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so this was a, a wonderful way to transition into what I'd like to talk about, because I, I think I basically agree with absolutely everything you've just said, and you, you yeah. teed it up. Um, Nicely for me to talk about a research project that I've just finished up uh, and a paper that, um, that will be forthcoming uh, that I wrote with Kate Klonick, whose work some of you may be, be familiar with, who, who, who writes in this area of content moderation as well. Um, and the paper is up online, Facebook v. Sullivan. You can Google it and, and, and find it. Um, but uh, but what, what Kate and I looked at in, in our research was trying to do a really deep empirical dive into how some of these issues are actually playing out in one of the, the largest or probably the largest um, platform that we have now, Facebook. Um, and, uh, and so I'll start with an anecdote and then we can kind of play with it from there. So, so in the lead up to the presidential election in, in 2016, um, there was some inner turmoil at, at Facebook about um, a particular content moderation decision. And that surrounded um, some, uh, some uh, content that Donald Trump had been talking about uh, with regards to his proposed Muslim ban. Uh, and, and a lot of the, the employees at, at Facebook were very angry about the fact that um, some of Trump's 
words were allowed to remain on the platform um, because they seemed to violate uh, some of Facebook's rules against hate speech. Um, but Mark Zuckerberg, when he explained why he was going to allow this content to remain on the platform, uh, cited two sort of concepts that have deep roots in First Amendment law. And this is where I might actually diverge with you a, a little bit, John. And, you know, yes, we can think of free speech just purely in constitutional terms as a legal principle, but I think free speech is also a political value. And more so, uh, when it comes to these content moderation regimes, what we see, in fact, is because so many of these companies uh, grew up in America, uh, often were written by American-trained lawyers who are sort of acculturated in American free speech law and free speech norms. Um, there's so much overlap here that I think it is actually quite useful to think about it as a, as a free speech issue, or at least having a lot of uh, relevance even uh, in terms of First Amendment doctrine. And so what Mark Zuckerberg said was, you know, we've got to keep this speech up uh, because Trump is a public figure and because the stuff that he's saying is newsworthy. So how does Facebook think about these, these two concepts, public figures and newsworthiness? Well, that's what Kate and I uh, tried to, to look at in our, in our paper. Um, and I'll just mention a, a sort of a couple of aspects of the way that Facebook goes about this and use that as a way to, to maybe tee up some discussion about this, this oversight board, this, this Supreme Court that Facebook is thinking about creating. So with respect to public figures, how does a company like Facebook that has to deal with so much content on its platform make what is really quite a nuanced determination about who is a public figure and who is a private figure. In the courts, we have you know, centuries of jurisprudence around some of these concepts, um, and there are really quite nuanced ways in which courts grapple with whether you are a, a public figure. And it's not just, are you famous or not, right? There are many sort of normative aspects to this. Have you voluntarily thrust yourself into the, into the limelight um, is, is sort of a, a key part of it. But Facebook needs to deal with some of these determinations on a mass scale. So how did Facebook go about determining whether you were a public figure or not for purposes of some of its, its content moderation? It used Google News. If you typed your name into Google News and it came up, you're a public figure. If you didn't show up, then you were a private figure. This is quite a rough tool, but it was something that they needed to do, or so they felt because of, because of the scale. But as I'm sure you can imagine, um, that creates certain problems for, for accuracy. People would slip through the cracks. It might also create some problems for fairness, because people who did nothing to sort of voluntarily thrust themselves into the limelight might still show up in a Google News result and therefore be deemed a public figure and have different rules applied to them on the platform um, as a result. Um, and then turning to Facebook's sort of newsworthiness determinations, uh, this is something that, that developed outside of a kind of algorithmic uh, uh, context and is done much more on a sort of ad hoc basis, often by sort of higher ups within the policy team. Um, and, and the way that it operates is a sort of general exception to all of Facebook's or at least most of Facebook's content moderation rules, where if a piece of content would otherwise come down because let's say it's gory uh, or there's nudity or something like that, if the content was newsworthy, well, then it would still remain up. But how these decisions were being made about what was or wasn't newsworthy is uh, still really quite opaque. Um, and, and it's difficult to know sort of on what grounds distinctions are being made between, well, this piece of content is newsworthy and this one isn't. Um, but what do I, I bring up both of these examples to, to you know, illustrate a point that Corinne just mentioned, which is I don't think that we can trust algorithms to make some of these really nuanced decisions. It's not just that the technology like isn't here now, it's that it may never really be able to make some of these determinations, at least for the foreseeable future, that really require some you know, human judgment and some sort of thoughtful consideration. And at the very least, 
um, we need some sort of transparency in the way that these decisions are being made. And then that brings me to, to Facebook's proposed um, Supreme Court. And so, uh, you know, in, in the paper, Kate and I uh, 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 talk about this, this you know, initiative that, that Mark Zuckerberg has said that he's committed to rolling out within the year, uh, by the end of 2019. Um, but it's still very much a work in progress, and they're consulting with a lot of people in sort of what form that body uh, might take. Uh, and, and, you know, we think that this has implications for all sorts of things and that the body really needs to represent um, a few values that we associate with courts if it's going to function. One is certainly due process. Um, what that means in the online realm is something that I, maybe we can get into more in the, in the question and answer part. Um, another is representation. You know, often we mm -hmm. think about judges uh, representing different different segments of the public in certain ways. Certainly the nine justices on the Supreme Court don't represent all of America perfectly in any way, shape, or form, but at least that's part of the idea of having different judges um, um, take up uh, roles within our within our sort of traditional governance uh, system. So that's another thing that, that I think the Facebook Supreme Court needs to, uh, needs to bear in mind. Um, but most importantly is the idea of independence. And this is where it still really remains to be seen quite how committed Facebook is to creating a real check on its power here. Um, as things stand, the content moderation system that Facebook has in place uh, has it playing all three branches of government and then the press as well, right? It is the legislature, it creates the rules. It is the executive, it enforces them. It is the judiciary, it adjudicates disputes about harmful resolution, sorry, harmful speech. And then it's also making certain judgments that we traditionally associate with the press, such as newsworthiness. So it's all three branches of our traditional government plus the fourth branch all rolled into one. And uh, there are certainly many things that we might worry about with this, with this Facebook Supreme Court, and we may rightly have concerns about Facebook assuming traditional governmental functions. We can maybe get into some of those discussions. But if they are going to be playing such a role in our society, and I don't see that going away anytime soon, um, I for one am actually uh, sort of embracing some of these models of governance that they're trying to, to put in place as a way to be a meaningful uh, check on their power and to make sure that there is some, some independence between the different roles um, that they play. So I'll stop now and hopefully we can get into some of that in, in questions. So uh, I witnessed one of these consultations with Facebook and I think that means consultation is defined as being yelled at by angry conservatives. That's, <laughs> that's the consultation. Um, our next guest is a Cato, our next discussant is a Cato Institute book author that I've worked with uh, on his second edition of that book. Uh, I think of him as actually a Cato Institute person, really. Uh, unfortunately, he isn't. He actually works for some place called the Brookings Institution, where he's a senior fellow. I don't know if you've heard of that place before. Uh, John, is, John Rausch is also a career journalist. You, you surely have read him many of his articles in The Atlantic or some of his other books besides his Cato book. He's written, uh, been a 30-year regular at The Atlantic, which was founded in 1857, and a former writer for The Economist, which was founded in 1843. That is to say, he hails proudly from the oldest of old media. He's written articles and books on many subjects, including the 1993 Cato book, Kindly Inquisitors, which about, is about free speech on campus, but it saw a second edition. And I have to say, if you read this book today, it is just as timely and just as on point and just as relevant for the social media world as it was in 1993. He's currently working on a book about disinformation, trolling, safe spaces, call-out culture, and other epistemic 
challenges of the digital era. It really upset me when I found out he was writing this, because I'm writing a book on this too, and I just was worried that he would get there first and there'd be nothing left to say. John. Thank you, John. It's, it's always a privilege to, to be at Cato, and don't worry, you'll get there first and no doubt with a better book. Um, I, too, am well set up by the, the previous conversants. Um, I want to leave you with two central provocations. The first and easiest is that the, the use of the term and the frame censorship for online content moderation is an impediment to understanding the problem correctly, and we should stop doing it unless the government is actually in the equation. The second, speaking as a representative of the oldest of old media, is that the online world and these problems actually have a lot to learn from the norms, practices, and traditions of old media, a lot more than we thought they did five or 10 years ago. And you heard some of that in, do you prefer Tom or Thomas? Thomas, generally, but either way. In Thomas's presentation, where we're seeing Facebook struggle uh, to deal with content moderation and trying to adapt old principles to a new format. That's where it's going. My claim is that it is inevitable that online social platforms will increasingly turn to norms and conventions of old media. They have no choice, and we should embrace that. It's a good thing. Uh, what is Facebook? What is social media? But let's talk for just a minute about Facebook. Is it a platform or a public utility, a neutral area where everyone's supposed to be able to speak, like the phone company? Then the right amount of content moderation is usually zero, and we should refer to moderation as something like censorship. Or is it a business? Is it like Roku, which just took down Alex Jones's InfoWars conspiracy site because it was bad for business? In that case, it has no obligations uh, other than doing what's good for business. Or is it a community? If it's a community, then it can and should set norms and standards with transparency and rights of appeal. And the other things you've been hearing about, which community members would expect, or is it a publisher? Interestingly, if it's a publisher, then it has responsibilities to truth, and it must curate content. And free speech protects its right to curate content, and it protects it against the claims of the users. This is not how people often think about the First Amendment, but of course, it's precious. The ability to exclude is at the core of the First Amendment. Well, censorship, the whole frame assumes they're just a platform or a utility which prejudges the whole question, makes the question we need to solve go away. So that's why I want to get rid of the word, and I'm glad we haven't been using it. Um, but which is Facebook? I think the answer is clearly it has elements of all four. That's what makes it so difficult. Um, but I think it's inexorably moving, as it must and as it should, into the camp of being a publisher. Though that's the model which Facebook itself is most resistant, because it comes with a lot of obligations, what Facebook is doing is soliciting and aggregating content, using that content to attract audiences, and then selling access to those audiences to advertisers. And in the course of doing this, they're making decisions about acceptability and appropriateness, exposure, placement of content. In other words, they're doing exactly what The Atlantic has been doing since 1857. They're doing it in a very different way. They're using user-generated content. That, in my opinion, is not a fundamental difference. Newspapers use user-generated content all the time. It's called classified advertising. It's very, very lightly policed. 
Um, Facebook is, in fact, in practice, if not in principle, accepting that it's becoming a publisher by hiring 20,000 people to do content moderation, uh, as well as a lot of AI. And that's as it should be. Now, we in old media have a word that we use for content, um, content moderation. Uh, we call it editing. <laughs> editing, if you think about it, is the killer app of traditional media. It makes a lot of these hard calls, and generally it makes them quite well. Sometimes editing is heavy and intrusive. Uh, if you want to get a news item into a newspaper, it's going to go through multiple layers of editing and fact-checking or a letter to the editor. Each and every one of those at the newspaper where I worked, I'm a career journalist, um, the, the writer of the, of, of the letter would get a phone call to verify the letter, make sure it was on the level. But sometimes editing is very light. You know, a classified ad goes straight through unless it's flagged for some reason. Facebook cannot and should not attempt to edit or pre-screen all its content, but if it's indeed a publisher, I think we've been way too quick until now to dismiss well-established norms of publishing like duty of care and like libel convention. These standards are well-settled, they're well-understood, they're stable. In my opinion, applying them, uh, there's a lot of talk about how if you repeal, for example, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act and make Facebook uh, Facebook posts actionable to Facebook for libel, this would be the end of robust discourse on the internet. I just don't think that's true. I think these are well understood concepts, very few people would sue, and there'd be a greater duty of care. Uh, I also think Facebook's new so-called Supreme Court, its oversight board for content moderation is an interesting compromise. Curious to see how that works out. It's editing, in effect, in hard cases, but it's editing deputized to outsiders to try to acquire more objectivity. Um, the biggest reason that Facebook is exceptional is not that it's social media, not that it's new media. My claim to you is that social media and new media are not as exceptional as we've tended to think. It's that it's so big. You know, it's just such a monopoly, it poses social problems of its own. And that goes back to something Corinne mentioned earlier. That may be the area where we should be looking at. Um, Sorting out what exactly social media are and what the conventions and laws uh, will be should will take time. Um, but I do think we should stop assuming as readily as we do that old media norms and conventions are obsolete. There is no escaping them, and I think they will turn out to be more relevant than ever. So I was going to mention something that John just alluded to that I forgot to mention in my initial remarks and fits in well before our next discussant which is that um, I wrote, uh, just finished a paper on uh, content moderation. And it, it was really an American paper. It was written from the point of view of American judiciary, American values. And I forgot one big thing during the writing of this paper that is vital here, which is with Facebook even, you're really talking about uh, certainly under 10% of Facebook's uh, user base is in the United States. Uh, it's easy to forget that because we have our own discussions, our own arguments. But it is, as John said, an incredibly important fact, and not the least that it creates all sorts of practical uh, problems for Facebook and content moderation. We have from Facebook today, Loy Moylan, who serves as the on the external affairs team for Facebook public policy. In this role, she manages the company's relationships with think tanks and advocacy organizations in support of Facebook's public policy goals. You didn't call me about Tommy Robinson being taken down. That's, uh, 
the, uh, prior to coming to Facebook, she spent 10 years in the think tank, that was a long time coming, by the way, uh, in the think tank world, working at the R Street Institute, American Enterprise Institute, and the Mercatus Center. Her writings have appeared in National Affairs, National Review, and numerous other outlets. And welcome to Cato, Lori. What does, uh, what do you have to say about how the Facebook point of view about these things? Well, yeah, I feel an um, immense responsibility now after being the, the focus of three um, other people's very excellent, excellent remarks. Um, and it's not lost on me that if we were to, to leave this room and head over to National Harbor right now for the um, CPAC conference, there is literally on stage right now a discussion about the responsibility of big tech and big, te big tech's effects on um, national discourse. So that's a, a way of starting and saying that it, it is a really difficult question. Um, so there are a couple of questions I want to address. I'll try to be brief. I do this literally all day long, every day. And so if I go a little long, I apologize because I recognize most of what will be interesting about this panel is, is in the Q&A. Um, so the first question I was asked to address is how should social media moderate the content on their platforms? And I'm going to start rather than with the normative of how should we, with how do we. Um, so to put some, to give you some statistics, to put it in perspective, you know, at Facebook we have 1.52 billion daily active users. We have 2.32 billion monthly active users. That amounts to billions of posts, of comments, of messages, of videos, of live videos. It's not just the the scale of the people, right? It's the scale of the, the type of content that we moderate that makes this an incredibly difficult question to tackle. So at the size that we're at, we do have to use a, a, a number of different tactics, right? We, of course, have our, our um, AI that detects things at the front line. The AI automatically sends anything that's caught to human review. Um, also, things can be flagged by our users, and those things are also sent to human review. When the people on the front line don't know the answer to the question, it's escalated to a supervisor. If that person doesn't know the answer to the question, it's escalated to another supervisor. And sometimes we can labor over a piece of content, I will be honest, for it for a long period of time, because sometimes these calls are incredibly nuanced and tricky, as some of the examples that Corinne mentioned earlier in her remarks. It can be really difficult, even with well-written community standards, which we are constantly in the effort of perfecting, um, it can be hard to know what the right thing is to do in any given situation. But outside of how we actually do that review on the front line, it's important to know how we think about those policies as they're crafted, right? So I think we could all in this room agree that there are some baseline things that we at Facebook, that hopefully Twitter, that other online platforms wouldn't necessarily want on their site, right? That could be you know, intellectual property infringements. That could be child pornography. That could be terrorist content. There are all sorts of things that at a baseline we can say have no place on Facebook. Those things are becoming easier and easier to train our AI to weed out, but it's, a, it's an ever-moving challenge, right? My like causing feedback? I feel like I'm causing feedback. Um, but beyond that, there, there's a secondary question of the, um, once we've decided what the baseline is, we at Facebook, I would go back and in John's remarks, I feel like actually, you know, what we're trying to be is, is a community, right? And as a community, we want to set norms that encourage more people to join our community, to have a positive experience in our community, to spend time in our community, right? Because at the end of the day, yes, we are a business, but we're a business that desires to connect the world. And so we do a constant surveying of users to see what experience are they having on the platform, what do they like the most, what do they 
dislike the most. And we, at times, adjudicate our standards based on things that our users are telling us. We also adjudicate them based on real-world problems that we see developing on the platform. So right, that can be one day kids decide to start eating Tide Pods, right, and put it on Facebook. That creates a real-world fire that we need to deal with incredibly quickly because of the virality, and particularly because virality among youth can um, cause really negative ill-intended consequences. But there are trickier questions than that, right? We also have youth on our platform, so how do we think about bullying? What's the line for speech that we want to allow when we're a platform that allows people as young as 13 to be on? Right, so there are real-world problems that we're trying to figure out how to address. And so our community standards are, are constantly being updated. Um, to give you some, a recent example that was reported in the press, uh, one of the things that causes us to re-adjudicate is when we learn that a standard as we've already written actually causes problems, right? It causes an unintended consequence when our frontline reviewers are trying to figure out what to do about it. So a recent more public example was when we dealt with a lot of um, commentary around Me Too. Um, we have hate speech rules that say if you're a protected characteristic, we define that as race, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, religious um, affiliation. You can't employ a number of words against those protected characteristics. So when Me Too happens and a bunch of women get on the platform and are just like, I had this experience, this happened to me, and men are scum, we take a lot of that down, right? But when we take that down, we're stifling an important part of discourse. So it gets brought back to the table. And we say, OK, well, if we're going to say women can say men are scum, because this is important at this point in time for us to say that, do we let men say something similar about women? Well, there's more than one gender identity. So what, what happens for people who don't identify as male or female? Do we allow certain types of speech around them? And so it can become an incredibly difficult question to answer because no one wants to say, well, women can say this, but men can't. Or you can say this about anybody that's not a man, right? Or you can say this only about men. And so it, it's, it's a very hard thing for us to get right. And sometimes the answer is we, we have to leave it in place as it is and then figure out how to deal with newsworthiness exceptions when they happen. So pointing out that it's incredibly complicated, it does beg the question of why don't we just use a First Amendment standard? Um, and, and the answer is, unfortunately, in our case, a First Amendment standard simply doesn't work. It doesn't work because we're a global company that moderates content for people all around the world where cultural sensitivities are incredibly different. If you look at things like our nudity policy, it actually reflects a very American point of view, much to the chagrin of many of our European counterparts, right? But we have to make these calls at, at a global scale. And so a First Amendment standard simply doesn't, doesn't work in many of these cases. Additionally, again, going back to the issue of youth and issue of real world consequences, there are times where we have to make calls about the type of community that we want to build as a company and what type of content do our users want to see that makes them want to opt into that community. Um, so to John's point, um, on what lessons we can learn from previous debates. I think Thomas's paper was incredibly insightful. I would encourage all, all of you to read it. Um, because this is definitely, you know, it's, it's interesting because we're a 15-year-old company. And for a 15-year-old company with 2.3 billion monthly active users, we're definitely still a startup. And there are a lot of lessons that we're learning here. And we're trying to be very transparent about those challenges. But there are definitely lessons that we can employ from you know, previous battles, whether it was the invention of the printing press, which caused many people to believe misinformation of the type that we're dealing with right now at Facebook, particularly around elections. Um, to to call for you know things like the you know the world is going to fall apart now that women can 
read because they won't fulfill their womanly duties, they'll be reading instead, right? And we see a lot of these fights and these arguments about the um, advancement of discourse into social media. And in preparation for this panel, I, I was looking back at you know some of these things that have been alleged in the past and found an interesting Rand paper from 1998 that was talking about the invention of the internet. And now the internet causes um, chain letters that are both illegal and bandwidth intensive, and they're multiplying at an alarming rate. Robo posters, one of whom automatically responds to any message containing the words Turkey or Armenia with messages about the Armenian genocide of Turks, which was the other way around. Posters are starting to spam people's group walls. I could go on and on, but it was this long list of things that it's, it's I think, already in 2019, we've forgotten that we fought this fight in the 1990s, right, just as recently. And so we're trying to learn from lessons that have gone on before, certainly. Um, but I think what makes it different in our case to some, to some extent it is the real virality issue, right? Like we lift up speech and we lift up speech immediately in a way that frankly, as much as I love my friends at, at the New York Times, right? Like even that reach is, is not quite as large as the, the virality reach we can have on, on Facebook. Um, so then the final question I was asked to address um, is when we build these things, does it lead into any evidence of systematic bias one way or the other? And I can assure you that like, this is a question we take incredibly seriously. Right now, the way our content system works, I, I, see, I, I really genuinely don't believe that we see any systematic bias, but this is a thing to which we have to hold ourselves incredibly accountable. We try to hold ourselves accountable to that in, in numerous ways, but I'll, I'll go through a few of them. Um, first, right now, for example, I know the thorniest issue probably for many of you in this room and certainly many in the um, conservative community that I deal with is our, our adjudication of hate speech. I recognize that this places um, numerous questions, right, about religious expression um, and other important things that we do want to see on our platform. And so right now, we actually have a call for open papers for researchers across the political spectrum to help us analyze our hate speech policies, to help us answer these thorny questions. One of the reasons we adjudicate hate speech is because we see it lead to real-world harm from Facebook into the real world. And so, but there's a causality question there, right? Like we, we think we see this speech and we think that it leads to something that happens in the real world, but are we actually more likely to see hate speech in a place where violence is already occurring, right? So there's, there's sort of a correlation issue there that we're trying to suss out, but as we figure out the best way to write those policies. So research calls for papers, not just papers that Facebook writes, but papers that we ask people like John Samples to write, hopefully in the future. Um, then secondly, I know most of you, I hope, are, are aware of the um, ongoing bias assessments that we're doing right now. We have a civil rights assessment that's trying to examine Facebook's unique impact on the civil rights community, whether it's the African-American community around housing or many other issues that we can see on the platform. We have a simultaneous conservative bias assessment that's trying to assess out if the ways our policies are written or the way that we enforce them leads to over-enforcement on one side over the other. Um, we bring in groups. We bring in, as John mentioned earlier, he's he's been to a few of our a few of our get-togethers and um, always been a really helpful participant. But we work with a lot of outside groups as we craft our standards, trying to bring them in so that we can hear perspectives that aren't ours. Because there's a truly an interesting question. You know, if we can think we're being as unbiased as possible, and we can look at our enforcement and test our enforcers and say they're not biased. Look, we they adjudicated our policies 100% correct. 
But how do we know that the, the problems we decided to tackle don't lead to some sort of systematic bias in how they end up being enforced, right? Are we more sensitive to Me Too because we have a liberal worldview? Or are we more sensitive to this problem because of a liberal worldview? We want to know the answer to that question, and that's why we bring in a lot of outside experts. And then finally, to Corinne's point, um, we're incredibly grateful for the calls of groups like the Santa Clara Principles. It leads us to help, it helps us understand what we need to do in terms of transparency to help make people comfortable with the calls that we're making. Because I fully recognize that, you know, as, as John says, that everyone has pointed out, we are moderating the speech for 2.3 billion people around the world. Yes, Facebook is only one of many methods in which you can communicate with your friends and family, but it's an important one. And so we need to be more transparent about the calls that we're making and helping hear, hearing from community members about what that transparency should look like has been helpful. So I'll stop there because I'm sure I've gone very long. So this reminds me of a funny thing at this meeting with the conservatives. Uh, the conservatives were just, uh, they were really upset with uh, uh, Facebook and the Facebook team. And so just they would go from anger to anger. And every time they went to a higher level, Lori would go, this is great, this is great. <laughs> Because she wanted everyone, she wanted it out on the table. She wanted them to know how people felt. But let's, let's go to Google instead of Facebook for a moment. How about that? The undefended one. The, um, the CPAC reminded me of the following. Uh, I was upstairs looking on my computer and came, pulled up a CPAC article. Uh, and there were two public figures, I think it's fair to say, uh, Charlie Kirk and Candace Owen. Now, you may or may not know who they are, but they are people who are public figures. They're, they are seen as a great hopes in some respects of uh, collegiate uh, conservatives, I guess I would say. The reason I raise it, though, is I was uh, at the Googleplex uh, about last July uh, listening to some research that Google had funded. And I remember distinctly a um, presentation in which an expert talking to me, but also maybe 50, 60, 70 Google employees made the case that Candace Owen should be taken down off of YouTube. The case was, this is not a conservative, this is a conspiracy theorist, a radical enemy of democracy, and you have to do something about it, right? Clearly a public figure that appears at a somewhat normal event, uh, and all, but the case was being made that Google had a responsibility to protect democracy. Now, this is a European notion, the European notion of militant democracy, that we don't wait until Hitler is chancellor before we act. We act before that, right? Um, so the question I pose is, it could be that Europe becomes the standard setter here in a way. And there's also a real argument about militant democracy, I think, or at least I'm going to say that. What do you think, Candace Owen, up or down? <laughs> um, I am not entirely familiar with Candace Owen's work, so I can't speak to that, but I want to speak to your It involved red pills and blue pills. Let me That's the part to, I let me just, Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> um, but let me speak to, to your larger question, because I, I do think that one of the things that I, that I think have, we have to acknowledge is that um, you know, there's a way in which, you know, the speech that happens online can cause real world harms. And I think not acknowledging that, it's just bare our heads in the sand. That, that, that's the reality. Um, there's, and so, so to me, the question is not whether that is true or not. I think let's say, let's posit that it is true. Um, we have to figure out what the right solution to that 
What's, or what's our answer? I'm not sure we're going to get a solution. I think actually that's probably the wrong term. But what's our approach to that? How do we get to that? So, so I do think there's a European approach that's much more aggressive than the approach that we've taken in, in the United States. Um, I'm not sure that approach has worked tremendously well if what you wanted to do is you know, prevent the reemergence of a lot of fascist tendencies and nationalist tendencies that people wouldn't like. It looks to me like that's progressing just fine, <laughs> no matter what, what is happening um, online. I also think that it's really important that we be careful um, that we aren't blaming the internet or blaming social media platforms um, for forces that are happening outside of the internet. Um, and we are sort of trying to, trying to, here's this thing we can get at. We can make a, a set of rules for social media platforms because we can get at them, right? But, it, but there's actually much more difficult underlying forces that we don't know how to get at. And so we're just going to deal with the problem that we think we can address um, and thereby you know, potentially cause other problems down the line. So there's a couple you know, different things. I'm just not sure that, that it totally works. And the last thing that I would say that I hope it doesn't go too off topic, but we talked a little bit earlier about, about 230. And as I think this audience is probably aware, recently we had some erosions of Section 230's safe harbor protections in the efforts to um, address online sex trafficking. Um, but we, what we have already seen is when we put pressure on companies to take more speech down in order to address um, a very real issue, there have been also real-world consequences there where a lot of people who are engaging in sex work, which you can like or not, but people do it, are now being driven offline and their lives are becoming more unsafe and more dangerous. So like really paying attention to the trade-offs here I think is tremendously important. Thomas? Uh, so, so I want to start by saying, uh, you know, I agree that we have to be careful not to uh, blame the internet for problems that are going on outside in real space that, um, you know, that really aren't the internet's making. And I also totally agree, of course, that Europe has historically um, been more permissive in the way that it allows re regulation of, of speech and militant democracy is, you know, something that we, we don't have here in, in the United States. It's not a theory of, of free speech that we've embraced. That being said, I do think it's important to, to you know, take heed when certain technological you know, innovations do change the calculus for the way in which speech can cause real-world harms. And I don't take either of you to be kind of disagreeing with that. But you know, there are important ways in which social media might change the calculus. And, and we might not need to embrace full-scale militant democracy to worry about some of the ramifications of online speech. So, in the United States, we're perfectly happy to, uh, to, to regulate speech if there's an imminent incitement to lawless action, right? This is the Brandenburg decision. But what does that, you know, why is that seen as such a, a narrow doctrine within the United States? Well, it's because basically Brandenburg stands for the, the principle that, you know, you really need to be there in front of the factory and calling, you know, the rallying cry to have everybody storm in and do something that is going to happen right there, right now, in your face. And that's why we allow that. But we treat something differently if, let's say, it's written on a pamphlet. And the idea there, of course, is, well, you know, there's more time for counter speech. Karma heads will prevail. The, you know, the remedy to bad speech is good speech. All of these standard First Amendment, you know, troops, which, I, you know, I, I hold very dearly um, and, and do believe in in a lot of contexts. But 
It's just a fact that some of the tools that are now being used for so much public discourse may have different ramifications. And it's not unique to the internet, right? So, you know, you look at one of the, the greatest atrocities in recent memory, the genocide in, in Rwanda. One of the reasons why that was able to have the, you know, catastrophic effect that it did was because of technology, a very different technology. It was radio, right? One of the reasons that that was able to spread so quickly and the international community was not responding in a way that it, well, there are other reasons why the international community maybe didn't respond, but, you know, one of the reasons why that was able to, um, to get just so awful so quickly was because radios were commonly available, um, uh, they were able to spread messages of, of hate very quickly, and it was able to have real-world effects, and I think that it's just um, something that we really need to grapple with. Yes, technology, you know, may not be the cause of all of the ills. There are certainly a lot of things that are separate from technology that are causing some of these real-world harms. But there may be ways in which just the speed with which you can get your voice out and you can get amplified and things can go viral that might mean that we need to revisit some of these assumptions that we've had. It may be true as an empirical matter, you know, that, that before there was such a thing as counter-speech being a really good way to, to tamp things down that may not translate so well in the online in the online sphere. We might not need to go to full-blown militant democracy to recognize that fact. I've heard that some African countries have uh, approached Germany and German authorities in this matter uh, for advice. So it's possible that you will see a uh, sort of models of regulation competition going forward that countries that have deep tribal divisions that could lead to violence would look, would say, well, we're more like Germany after 1933 than we are, or 1918, than we are the United States. I mean, that's possible, right? John. Uh, the person on my immediate left is brilliantly positioned to answer your question. Uh, I've talked just this month to representatives of Facebook and Google about this very question and as you pose the question, it's a false dilemma. It's not a question of take them down or keep them up. It's a question of placement. Again, decisions that editors and old media have been making for 200 years. You don't have to take Candace Owen down, but you can discern, and you can do some of this algorithmically, it turns out, um, that her statements are consistently non-factual uh, or misleading, and you can demote her in your rankings. And it turns out that that will have a very significant effect on the amount of mileage it gets. Um, so you can introduce an element of epistemic value in terms of placement, which is, again, what publishers have been doing for over a century. And that turns out to be pretty darn effective without actually silencing anyone. But, but the promise of the internet was that the old gatekeepers, the old gatekeepers you work for and have flourished under, and frankly the country has in many ways too, that though we would finally be free of them, and that we would have... A, here comes everybody, right? That we would have, uh, and we do have a, a sense, a free entry would be much easier. Aren't you really saying uh, meet the new boss, same as the old boss? I'm saying there will always be intermediaries in communities if they're going to function in a non-sociopathic way. That the idea of having everyone communicate with everyone in a wonderful, open, pro-social fashion was always a dream. People called network sociologists who studied that and knew it was always a dream. Psychologists know societies don't work that way. At every level of society, we have deinstitutionalized and disintermediated over the past 40 years, and it's not working very well. So yes, gatekeeping will not look the same, but it is absolutely essential. Will the gatekeepers be different, though? Different people, different outlook, 
different. There'll be different ways of doing the same thing. Can I some make will be on that just real quick? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Some yeah, will be technological, mm -hmm. uh, but some will be human. Correct. So, so from my perspective, you know, the dream of the internet wasn't that there would never be any kind of gatekeepers. I think the dream of the internet was that you could have, you know, a thousand flowers blooming. You could, and I still think this is something to strive for. You can have lots of different kinds of platforms. Some of them will be heavily moderated, and that's fine, and you can make those choices, but you should have some alternatives for different, different options. Um, as opposed, and, th and this is where I think the competition issue really comes into it, because I'm really not sure that we would ha be having so many conversations about content moderation if we had, a, if we felt like we had a real multiplicity of platforms. Now there are there are multiple social media channels, but let's face it, some players are bigger than others, and their decisions have bigger effects than others. Um, and so it it does feel like we're converging on a few gatekeepers around speech. Um, and so I really think that these conversations cannot be divorced from the competition conversation because um, they really very just intimately linked. So the competition question will ultimately, as long as you have an alternative to where you've been thrown off, uh, then really from a libertarian or a civil libertarian point of view, it's much less of a problem, isn't well, it? Well, it would certainly help. I, I do think that that's an important thing. And I just, I, I also do think that, that that sort of fulfills some of the early promise of the internet. Because I do worry, worry very much that um, it is um, meet the new boss not sufficiently different from the old boss, might <laughs> be the way putting it, where you have, once again, a few companies making decisions about um, what speech we get access to and what we don't. Can I make one caveat to that? So I agree that competition is crucial in this area, but I don't think that it's enough for us to just have multiple actors. We need to have diverse actors. And one of the problems that we That's have right. now is that even though, yes, there are several different players out there that you know you could use, you know, you could decide, oh, I'm fed up with Facebook, I'm going to Twitter, I'm fed up, you know, the fact that they are moderating content in such homogenous ways now presents a different problem that I think maybe antitrust law and competition policy are equipped to deal with, but maybe not. That may be something that needs to come from you know, other sources um, yeah. that just having multiple actors is not going to be enough to, to get at. And then when we're thinking about things like these oversight boards, you know, one of the, the things that uh, I'm hearing now more and more is, oh, well, if Facebook's going to create an oversight board, why don't we just have one social media council that's going to govern all of these social media uh, uh, you know, decisions at, at that top level right. that's going to review them? I personally am opposed to that for that reason, that I think if the more that we homogenize these actors, the less we're actually going to have meaningful choice between different, uh, different platforms. That's a really good point. But it'd still be sure. great to be Justice McSherry. Absolutely. Right. No, I, yeah. Laurie. So there's, there's definitely a, a lot here that I want to respond to. Um, and so going back to your original question with Candace Owens, um, Candace Owens is on Facebook. Um, it's, it's an incredibly difficult challenge for us as a company, right, um, to figure out what to do about misinformation because misinformation is, is in the eye of the beholder. And different types of misinformation can have different types of effects, right? So how do you figure out which one you need to take action on versus which ones are better to allow for counter speech, right? 
Um, so a recent example of that that we're, we and other platforms are grappling with is the calls about anti-vaxxing. There is anti-vax content that exists on Facebook, it exists on Amazon, it exists um, across the internet ecosystem, and there is obviously, if you look at Washington State, very real-world harm that's come out of this movement, right? Um, but it's not real-world harm in the sense of what we dealt with in, in India, right, where you see misinformation leading to immediate riots where people are being lynched, right? There's a little bit more of a, of a time lag, right? And so and we have been um, vocal about we're figuring out what the right solution is there, so I'm, I'm not going to give you what the solution is at this point in time because we're still figuring it out. But you guys have, have hit on a, a number of different things that are at our disposal. Um, we can move things down in your newsfeed. We can make different things not um, immediately come up if you search for certain types of groups. There's all sorts of different tools that we could employ. The question is, what type of misinformation is this? Where is the link to actual damages? And therefore, what does it call for? But at the end of the day, this puts us in an incredibly difficult position, right? Because Facebook in no way desires to be the arbiter of truth, right? As much as we keep putting in the, being put in this publisher box right now, that's not our goal, right? We believe that if more people have more speech, the world becomes a better place, and therefore it's not our jobs to necessarily police that speech for the entire world. It is our job to create a community that people want to opt into, because while we do believe that more speech for more people leads to a better world, people have to want to be there to have that more speech, right? And so we have learned a lot from our users about what they um, dislike in terms of misinformation, where they think those lines are, but we receive pressure, and I think, you know, well-deserved pressure from across the spectrum. Um, one thing I want to be sure I, I hit on, I'm sure it would probably come up later, but it, it's come up a few times as well, is the question around Section 230. Um, you know, for us right now, we really value the um, benefit that Section 230 allows us. I would definitely disagree with the notion that if we were to lose our Section 230 protections, we would be able to continue to operate in anywhere near the fashion that we operate today. Um, if Section 230 went away, Rather than, I know that, you know, at the stage at CPAC earlier today, I'm sure there were probably remarks about how if Section 230 were taken away, we would no longer accidentally take down any conservative political speech. But that is simply not true, because as was noted in the example about sex workers and SESTA-FOSTA, we now have to take down even more content, right? We have to take down even more things that might come up to the line. You know, right now we are able to operate in Germany in a different way than we are in the United States when it comes to hate speech laws. If we were to be made more liable for things here, it really wouldn't be some world where a thousand flowers bloomed and you could have more speech on Facebook. It would be a world where you had much less. So I just wanted to be sure I got that in. Okay. Uh, if, if, cool. if I could footnote that, um, it's important to remember, again, for those of us in old media land, that libel law and other du duties of care in the world of journalism are not just protections for readers against journalistic organizations. They're protection for journalistic organizations against readers because they provide some clear boundaries for what we are and are not allowed to publish. And the courts have actually been very good about patrolling those boundaries in cases like Times versus Sullivan, I could argue to you that as terrifying as a world without 230 looks to Facebook right now, it would actually give you clearer and firmer guidance about uh, what's actionable and what's not actionable, put you on solider ground. I don't think you'd be sued out of existence. I just don't think it would happen. 
Well, it's important to remember, right, that as I, as I said at the beginning, we're operating in a world of billions of posts and billions of comments and billions of videos a day, right? And there's just not a world, as has been noted um, widely across this panel, we've been, and we have been very public, we have a 10% error rate right now in how we adjudicate content based on our own rules. It's incredibly difficult, and it's, you know, if you can read the stories in The Verge this week about everything that our content reviewers have to um, go through in any given day. If we were to lose the immunity that we have, it would encourage us to massively overcorrect and over enforce because we would feel like we were at risk for lots and lots of new things. So let's go to the questions from the audience. Uh, we'll start down here. Now, we, it's been said many times, or a few times here, that Cato is a conservative organization. It's not really, it's a libertarian organization. But uh, I do want to quote to all of our questioners uh, the advice of Franklin Roosevelt, the advice he gave to speakers, because I think it's great, which is, quote, be sincere, be brief, be seated, unquote. <laughs> so Franklin Roosevelt, a favorable citation there. Uh, where do we start? The lady here on the, and I'll be rude too, I'll just point at you and say that one. No other way to do it. Thank so. you all. I, I would like to make one very brief comment while I'm sitting down, which is that Thomas and, and this is to Corinne and Thomas in particular, that the concerns about competition and um, you know diversity are ill-served by regulation because if there's anything that regulation does is that it secures the dominance of the current incumbents. Um, and it also sets standards uh, uh, around which uh, current incumbents operate. But aside from that, my, my larger question is, is there anything in the current settings at the hand of users that makes them unable to control the content that they see? But on the part of the users. So is there, I mean, there's two questions. Another version of this question would be, could it be the case that we're going to develop technology that would make that. Uh, well, I, I'm happy to say Yeah. But you have maybe a point to make about Okay, so, so first of all, I want to um, agree with your concerns about the potential impacts of regulation, just to be not ambiguous. Like, I'm not, I think that I agree with you completely that there's lots of regulatory proposals that are floating around there right now that I think could backfire completely and um, discourage competition. And that's something that my organization, um, EFF, pays a lot of attention to and worries about very, very much. Um, so it doesn't mean it's, there's nothing to be done, but absolutely care, it has to be hugely careful because it can backfire so much. Um, I do think there, there are tools that exist um, for social media uh, on several social media platforms that users could be using. Um, a lot of times, I, in our experience, users are not particularly good at using those tools and aren't really sure how to use those tools. We've actually sometimes published some posts just sort of, here's how to use your settings on Facebook. Here's how to be, and they're incredibly popular. <laughs> they go crazy. Um, and I assume they are incredibly popular because users actually need that help. I'm not sure that we're all, all the way there yet. I think there are some things where it's not always easy for users to realize that, for example, they're getting hit with misinformation and, and so on. So I think it's a hard problem. But I don't think it's wrong that um, tools exist. And I think what we need, and so at a minimum, we could start with educating users a little bit more about what's already available to them. Um, it's, 
but it, it can be it can be a challenge for an ordinary user to figure out how to monitor all their settings and set all their settings. And also sometimes it may be that the company that they're engaging with is um, they're changing their practices. And then you've got to sort of constantly be on guard to update your settings in light of the new practices that maybe you didn't even realize were, were changing. I think there's a problem here that is, will come later rather than now, which is imagine you could have a comfortable experience. You had control over it and you tended toward comfort. You, you filtered out, because a lot of this stuff goes around offensive speech, right? Some of it's dangerous, but there's also offensive. Let's imagine you have AI that ex ante filters everything out. I think that's a real problem because you have a, you begin to have and you have created a false sense of the world. It's important to hear what President Trump says, particularly if you don't like it or if you do like it. Yeah. Right, but I think as uh, yeah, and I guess that the there may be a consumer citizen distinction here that I'm working with in a totally surprising way to me. But in any case, that may be what it is. It's important that people. But Jack Dorsey said this at Twitter. Why don't you get rid of? Why don't you close his account, right? And he said, because it's important that people hear everything they say. Uh, but I think you're right if, if what you're saying is it's important as citizens, though as consumers, it reduces the value of your experience. So one of the things we've learned about the internet, John, is that unfiltered information is not neutral information. In fact, it tends to favor disinformation and misinformation over epistemically solid information because it's so cheap to produce clickbait misinformation. Uh, it travels much faster. It's very hard to refute once it's out there. Filtered, responsibly filtered information is better from the point of view of perceiving reality. And that's important to understand if we care about a standard of truth. Uh, this is not a place for populism. Gentlemen, uh -oh. gentlemen on that. the aisle there. There'll be a reception afterward, remember? You'll be able to continue this. Thank you. <laughs> uh, thank you all for a great panel. Uh, Kevin Bankston, New America's Open Technology Institute. My question is for Jonathan. Um, considering Facebook scale, uh, it seems that even if you threw, as they are, tens of thousands of humans at the problem or machine learning models fed by trillions of pieces of content, even then, you will still likely have hundreds of thousands or even more likely millions of pieces of actionable defamation on the platform at any one time. And so my question to you is, what does a duty of care look like in that situation? How much is enough? How good enough is enough? And if it takes that level of resources, how are we ever going to get a new entrant into content platform businesses that can have explosive growth again before they get sued out of business, even if Facebook can handle a lot of lawsuits? So fantastic questions, which I'm not expert enough to answer. Um, my issue is that so many people have simply ruled out of bounds the conversation about six, Section 230 on the assumption that it will destroy robust uh, robust interaction on the internet. I think, in fact, what we'll find, first of all, uh, there won't be all that much actionable content because it's fairly easy to screen out uh, a large amount of it. Second, not everybody's going to file a lawsuit because it's very expensive and difficult to do. Third, the courts are very, very protective of free speech. We've seen this again and again. So those course, cases that are filed, most of them will be lost. Fifth, the ones that, um, that succeed will get disappointing amounts of damages. 
and fifth, remember that I've lost, I've lost count, but remember the standard here. It's a malice of forethought standard, right? Just some negligence. But good faith efforts by Facebook or whoever to uh, remove actionable content is a protection under these laws. What, what a plaintiff has to show is that I intended to target you knowingly with false information and the publisher helped me do that. That's a narrow standard. So that's why I think, I'm not saying we just take existing libel conventions and just transplant them unchanged, so that might be better than what we have now. But I am saying we should try to learn and adapt those standards rather than just saying, if you try to bring them over to the internet, everything will break down. The So, right, um, it's clearly not practical to screen everything in advance, and of course, lots of content is not heavily screened in advance in old media. Um, what you can do is make an effort to go after stuff once you know about it, which Facebook already does, and that's a protection under existing libel laws. And by the way, saying that that's a protection gives Facebook actually some legal cover, some legal safe harbor for taking some of the duty of care that it is, in fact, already taking. So I, I worry a little bit that, that your point about malice there is a little misleading because the malice standard only applies, as the questioner sort of implied there, to, to, to public figures. So the problem with applying that sort of standard writ large on, on, on Facebook is that pure negligence would be enough. But I think you're absolutely right that there are other ways that we could craft legislation that would still have some safe harbor but not maybe the blanket immunity that you have. So it may be that something... And I, I, you know, people from the from the copyright wars were in like, you know, something more akin to a, a notice and takedown type thing, where if you had some legal judgment that there had been libel, well, then maybe the the, the company would have to take it down. You know, there are other ways that you could bring in certain scope of liability that wouldn't mean just taking out uh, section two thirty. Yeah, that, that's one of the entirely. things that's so important about your paper, which everyone should read Thomas's paper. There's so little out there thinking through how you can adapt these core concepts from old media land and bring them over into new media land. Um, Thomas has given that some fascinating creative thought. Laurie? So uh, I, I will say, um, I, A, if you want to watch not Facebook defend this, because I, I recognize that we are an incredibly large company with a, a legal team that makes us not the most sympathetic victim, um, I would recommend to you the wonderful panel that NetChoice had earlier this week, actually, on Capitol Hill that you can find online, where you know, we were able to hear from representatives from Patreon, representatives from Medium, representatives from other small um, startups, because I, I think you're dead on, Kevin, that if we were to lose the Section 230 protections, you would perhaps never see a viable alternative to Facebook, let alone outside the realm of immediate social media where other internet um, companies enjoy the protections that Section 230 affords. So I I will just point you in that direction since I'm, I'm not as sympathetic. <laughs> Sorry, we, the problem is we're at the end of the conference, at the end of the time allotted for this panel. I personally would like to thank Matthew Feeney here for setting up uh, this conference and getting a, what's been a very good group. I would like to thank each one of our discussants today. This is not the last time that these issues will be discussed at the Cato Institute or anywhere else. We're, it's a really strong feeling, I think, we have now and with each passing month, that we're at the front end of these kinds of issues, not at the back end, uh, and that a lot of these uh, questions and issues and these 
people will return again. So I'll uh, look out for the books that we've been discussing, the issues, Thomas's paper, John's book, uh, and uh, please come back. But for now, uh, thanks for coming, and let's go have a reception and continue the discussions. <laughs>